We are closing up the Overcome series that we started on Easter Sunday. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about overcoming our fears. Greg, Greg opened the series with, with talking about overcoming our fear of death. You know, we have a fear of death and how Jesus' resurrection not only gave us hope, but it confirmed to us that there is indeed life after death and he indeed has the power and the authority over it. He talked about the fear of evil and how it is we who perpetuate it, but yet he says that he promises to turn it to good to fulfill his purposes. And last week he talked about the fear of pain and how it's a part of the fall and somehow, mysteriously, it strengthens our faith. And in talking about fears, we need to understand this. I mean, fear is universal. None of us will escape it. Some fears are considered normal and rational that we all deal with. We deal with the fear of death. We deal with the fear of our health, we, our, our financial stability, public speaking. Fear is universal. Some fears are considered irrational fears. And we have a category for that. We call them phobias. These are irrational. And, and just here's, here's a few of them uh, that I came across. These are, these are phobias. Buzz and Greg have often, pretty much daily, accused me of this one. And it is phronophobia, which is the fear of thinking. This one makes absolutely no sense to me, and it is pelletophobia, the fear of bald people. <laughs> I understand the fear of going bald. This one is just weird, blenophobia, the fear of boogers. <laughs> the fear of boogers? Come on. My granddaughter eats them for breakfast. <laughs> and we can just tie it all up in a pretty little bow with phobophobia, the fear of developing a fear. You know, and fear can often in our lives just show up when we are faced with tough decisions. And it can paralyze us between two parallel worries. The fear of losing something familiar and the fear of the unknown. I remember just a few years back when the recession hit and, and people had mortgages that they absolutely could not afford. And they were terrified that they would lose what they knew they couldn't keep and they were killing themselves trying to figure out how to hold on to it. And it was a very difficult time for them emotionally and for them around them pretty much knowing what the end result was going to be, but so unsure of where the landing spot was going to be. And it's the same for us. You know, the fear of health and death. We all know that someday we will face these things in one way or another. And as we grow older and those things become more tangible, our fears are increased. Fear is defined as this, a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, and loss, whether that threat is real or imagined. And I would even go so far as to say that whenever I've been confronted with fear, loss is somehow at the root of it. And I suspect I'm not alone. We all deal with fear, but how we deal with fear is the question. Some just, they worry and they worry and they worry. They, they can't sleep. They can't eat. They'll lose all sense of balance in their lives. 
Some people simply just choose to put their head in the sand and hope that if they don't face it, it will simply go away. But what has God said about how we should deal with fear? And let me just open this up in prayer. Oh, Lord, you have instructed us not to fear. But it also seems that we cannot escape it. So in our frailty, help us to learn how to deal with our fears in a way that honors you. But yet releases us from its captivity and its imprisonment. Amen. Jesus says, if we put our priority on eternity, our daily fears will be dealt with. We all, fear the, uh, we all fear loss, and at some point we will face it. And usually when people are going through trying times, when they're suffering, people will point them to the book of Job and his story. Because we can relate our fears to what he went through. Because we all fear the loss of stuff. And let me just start here at Job 113 through 17. And it says, And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down your servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking... There came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and your servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them, struck down your servants with the edge of a sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. How powerful a story of loss. I mean, in just a moment, he went from having great wealth to losing his assets, his servants, and virtually everything that provided him his livelihood. But the painful thing to watch here is that he never even had a chance to catch his breath. Between all the barrages of bad news... And have you ever felt or experienced a time like that in your life? Where it just seems like it is one disaster after another. One crisis after another. Or just when you think, I'm finally getting on top of this. Something comes along and knocks you back down. What does that do to your faith? We all fear the loss of our stuff. There are multi-billion dollar companies built on this fear. They're called insurance companies, you know? I mean, we're willing to lose a little bit every month or a little bit more annually to protect our stuff or replace it if anything ever happened to it. There are similar companies that deal in loss aversion. And economists have identified loss aversion as a major factor in financial decision-making. In that most people would rather avoid losing money than acquiring more. In fact, the psychological impact of losing something is thought to be twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining it. We buy things we don't need. Groupons we're not going to use because, oh my gosh, the sale's ending in 15 minutes. 
We'll grab that last article off the rack because it's the last one and somebody else might take it and I don't really know if I want it. Or we will pay that gym membership that we haven't gone to in years because we're afraid that if we ever decide to go back, we're going to lose this great rate. We make bad decisions based on the fear of losing something. Now, some of you out there might be thinking, my stuff isn't that important. My faith would remain intact if I lost everything. In fact, people can do whatever they want to me. I would even gladly lay down my life for God and not fear. And at this point, I should probably be wearing superhero crime fighters. You know, and you may be that person. I'm not. <laughs> you may be that person. But what about facing the end of the life of your parents or your spouse or your child? We all fear the loss of our loved ones. And back to Job 18.22. And this is picking up the next verse. So as he was still speaking, as he was still speaking. And while he was still speaking... There came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in your older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came into the world, naked I shall leave the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. And if you continue reading the story, he greatly lost his health. And yet he worshiped. And how would we do under those circumstances? Could we honestly say that we would worship the Lord after all of that. Sorry, this is the fourth time my throat is killing me. Now, I want to I just make two points here before I get into the rest of this. Number one, I'm not sharing, with the, sharing this with you so that you think, wow, that guy's holy. Because I'm not that holy. Number two, I'm not really comparing myself to Job in the sense that he went through way more than I think I will ever experience in my life. But 18 years ago, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. She had surgery. She went through chemo. And the doctors told her at the end of her treatment, if you go five years, we'll consider you cured and cancer-free. That's good. Well, three and a half years later, it came back. And they attacked it more aggressively, but they sat her down and told her, at this point, you will never be considered cured. It's not a matter of if you get cancer again, it's when you get cancer. And chances are, when it comes back, it's going to be terminal. So she went through her treatment, and, and there was some time after that, quite a ways after that, I went out to breakfast with my dad, and my dad wasn't a believer. Um, you know, he said he was agnostic or atheist. And I told him, I said, Dad, you know, I get it that you don't believe in God. I get it. 
But the thing that troubles me is this. This is the most important decision you're ever going to face. And to just say, I don't believe, and then just let it go, leaves me unsettled. You know, if you researched it, if you, you know, you scoped everything out and you had a reasonable answer for why you don't believe, I can kind of accept that. But to just say there's no God and and leave it at that, why don't we meet on Saturday mornings? Let's meet every Saturday morning. Bring me your toughest questions. What are your roadblocks? Let me answer your questions for you. Let's go through the Bible. And I'm thinking, all I need to do is answer his questions and he's going to give his life to the Lord. So we met for about three to six months. And during that time, there were a couple of really aha moments for him where I would ask him a question and I could just see where he's like, this makes sense to me. But he made a comment twice. And the first time, I kind of blew the comment off as as just sarcasm because that's what our family does. The second time, a little later, he said it again, and it made me go, wow, and scratch my head and think, there is a lot more to this statement that I'm giving him credit for. And he said this, if there is a God, he has put your mother on this earth to convert me. And as long as I hold out, he can't take her. But if I give my life to him, then he's free to take her. My dad gave his life to the Lord six years ago. I got to baptize him. It was a great time. Six years ago. Six months later, my mom's coming back from a routine doctor's appointment. And she called me up and said, I had some tests and there are spots all over my shoulder and my arm and they think it's cancer bone cancer and I went to bed that night and I'm praying and I'm thinking God what are you doing you know what are you doing this was my dad's greatest fear and now he's going to see it realized and I was searching my mind for scriptures and promises and I'm laying there and I'm crying and I get dressed and I'm walking around the neighborhood like a lunatic crying and praying but I'm looking for those promises that he says I will not take your loved ones from you and all I could come up was was the exact opposite you're all gonna die and at this point And that, you know, again, I'm not trying to make myself uber holy here. Through that, I knew my faith was secure. Kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were going to get thrown into the fire furnace because they wouldn't worship King Nebuchadnezzar's God. And they said, go ahead, throw us in. Our God is more powerful than you. He can save us from that. But even if he chooses not to, We will not worship your God. Yeah, God can do it. But even if he chooses not to, my faith in him will not wane. And I felt like that's kind of where I was at. I get it. I understand it. But what about my dad? What is this going to do to him? And really, I felt like because I couldn't find a promise, I really had no leverage with God. (laughs) To just go, see? 
And I just had to rely on, on his goodness and his wisdom in dealing with my dad. And to kind of relieve some tension here, um, she got some more tests done. And they, they said, okay, we think we've found it. We think it's, and I'm saying this wrong, but multi-myeloma cancer or something. It's easily treated. We could just treat it with steroids. You're going to live a long and healthy life. They ran some more tests and said, you know what? It's not cancer at all. You must just have spots on your bones. And I believe she was healed, but, um, you know, but, but it was like, yeah. And so during that time, I felt like I was worshiping God. Job, as he was going through this process, he worshiped God. And here's the thing. I don't necessarily see worship in those times as this, you know, we've got to get outside of ourselves and find this happy place. And let's sing, let's sing kumbaya. Let's, let's make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Come on. Sometimes there's great pain in worship. But worship is really just acknowledging God for who he is. You know? It may not be filled with delight, but sometimes, and, and there's pain, but we need to be determined to see God's true character throughout. That's worship. Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Because you see, God is good. And that doesn't change with your circumstances. He is faithful, and it doesn't change with your circumstances. He is kind, and that doesn't change with your circumstances. And he is loving, and say it with me. It doesn't change with your circumstances. We not only worship God when we reiterate who he is, who he was, and who he ever shall be, we worship when we give up our biggest fear to him. And that's the loss of control. We all fear the loss of control. In fact, I believe this. All fear of loss is, is the realization that we're no longer in control. Let me rephrase that. All fear of loss is, is the reality of the false premise that you ever had control in the first place. Yeah. We need to be wise. Yes, we need to be good stewards. Yes, we need to plan. But control is out of our control. Think about how many people planned and did everything right. They planned and they invested wisely for their retirement. And the stock market crash wiped out much of their wealth. And they were left trying to put their pieces back together. Coming up with a new plan and a new retirement date. The person who eats healthy and exercises religiously and dies of a heart attack while jogging at the age of 45. While the woman that we're celebrating on the Today Show turning 100 drinks two shots of whiskey and smoked every day of her life. You know, we are not in control. And we may believe somewhere in the back of our minds that if we pray a certain way and if we live a certain way, we can control God. That we can get him to do what we want him to do or we can get him to do what we expect him to do or we fear that we can't. My youngest daughter, Corinne, at 20, she broke up with her longtime boyfriend and they were broke up for a couple of months. And after a couple of months of breaking up, she found out that she was pregnant with his baby. And I remember her coming into my bedroom at about 2 a.m. to wake me up and tell me. 
But she was broken. I mean, she was crying. She was hurting. She was scared. And I also remember all the lectures that came to my mind. All the I told you so's, what do you think you're doing? And I also remember a voice coming over me that just said, shut up. She does not need a lecture right now. She needs to know that she has a daddy who loves her. And so I just shut up, tried not to look very shocked, lean over and kiss her and tell her, I love you. Everything's going to be all right. And after Tucker, my grandson, was born, and they were living with us, and he was probably about a year old, she started leading a more rebellious life, making bad decisions. And, and I remember it started to bring stress between our relationship. And Nancy and I, we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And we're just like, God, just, just grab her heart, Lord. Just grab her heart and bring it back to you. And one day I asked her, I said, Corey, you know, you know the life that you're choosing to live, you are choosing to live in rebellion to God. And she said, yeah, I do. Okay. Well, let me ask you something else. Do you want a relationship with God? And she said, no. My heart sank, and I'm just like, ugh. And then I went, all right. One last question. And this is going to sound a lot like the last question, but it's really, really different. Do you want to want a relationship with God? And her eyes kind of teared up and she said, yeah, I want to want one. I just don't want one. And I said, okay, that's good enough for me right now. Because now I know how to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God moves your heart from wanting to want one to wanting one. Because once you want one, you'll have one. And, and again, she just continued to go down this road of rebellion. And we're like, look, we're not going to babysit Tucker so you can do this lifestyle that we don't approve of. And in fact, if you're living in my house, please respect our values. Or move out. And she came home the next day and said, I put an application into an apartment. They accepted it. I'm moving out this weekend. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not what I meant. And when she was living on her own, she got deeper into it. And, and not only was her life difficult, her finances became a wreck. I mean, she was laid in her rent. She had let her car insurance expire. She... Her registration on her car had expired. She had a ticket that she didn't pay. So it had went to warrant. And Nancy is talking to me and she's like, Brent, she's drowning. You know, how about if we just catch her up? How about if we pay her insurance, pay her registration? Because if they impound her car, if they pull her over and she doesn't have insurance and everything else, they're going to impound her car and then she can't go to work and support her and my grandson. Why don't we just, she's drowning. Let's just help her just to get her feet back on even ground. And I went, no. Now let's let God do what God's going to do. Because I'm thinking if God's bringing pain into her life, if he's bringing discomfort into her life, 
to get her to hate that life enough to turn her heart back to him. But we're running up behind God and making everything comfortable for her again. Why would she ever reach a point to say, I don't want this, I want that? Nancy agreed with me in principle. She understood that. But she also has the heart of a mother. And she just wants to rescue her baby. And let me tell you, Nancy and I were in agreement on what we can do head to head. Not necessarily heart to heart. But every step of the way too, there was doubt. You know, are we being loving enough to our daughter? Are we really listening to God enough? And I knew one thing. It was bringing some tension into our relationship, mine and Nancy's. And if this thing went tragic, I was in a lot more trouble. There was going to be a lot more tension there. And I remember praying one time when I was alone. I said, God, just Tell me how this is going to turn out. I don't care anymore. I don't care if it's good news or bad news. I want the news so I could deal with it. And I remember thinking, Brett, you're not struggling with faith here. You're struggling with control here. I thought if I had the information um, that I could control the outcomes. I can control the emotions. I can control the expectations. And I realized I don't have control of it at all. God, you love her more than her mother and I could ever love her. You want her best for her more than her mother and I could ever want that. And again, to relieve some tension, she did rededicate her life to the Lord. She married the father of her um, child. They've been married for six or seven years now. And they're raising their children up to love the Lord. Everything is good. But during that process, I realized the dealing, struggling with control. Because we believe in controlling things until we realize we have no control. And we simply have to come to that place where we give up the facade And trust the one who is in control. And let me reassure you. None of this is easy. None of this comes without an element of doubt. Because doubt always comes attached to loss and pain and evil. And we kind of have to understand too. That in this fallen state that we live in. Doubt is always going to be part of our faith. We worship God when we surrender our fight, to control, fight for control and trust him. Jesus says, God is in control, so we don't have to fear. Matthew 6, 25, 34 says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or, or store everything away in the barns. Yeah, your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I mean, right there, he's addressing stuff. Don't worry about your stuff. God takes care of the animal's stuff. He'll take care of yours. And which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to his lifespan or the lifespan of another? Don't be, don't be worried and anxious about life. 
Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what do we do? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the non-believers, they seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's anxious enough for itself. There's enough problems tomorrow. (laughs) It also says there's enough problems today to keep you busy. You don't have to worry about tomorrow's too. We don't need to be anxious about our stuff or our goods. God will provide. In fact, he already has. As I look across the room, I don't see anybody that is unclothed. I don't see anybody that is on their last breath due to malnutrition. And if he's taken care of you this far, why would he not continue? He knows the future and he's acting and he's providing in it already. We find everything we ever needed in receiving Christ's work on the cross. Now we overcome our fears by realizing what we gain in the work of Jesus Christ. And it puts our losses in perspective. Paul says uh, in Philippians, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the unsurpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count that as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. We need to change our perspective to see our gain in Jesus greater than any loss. And he has promised us. So you can hold it up to him. He has promised us more than we could ever imagine. And I would just ask you, play along with me for a minute. If I had God-like powers, in the sense that whatever I am about to say, absolutely, 100% will happen. Tomorrow, each one of you, tomorrow, you are going to lose everything. You're going to wake up in the morning and you will not have your jobs. You will be kicked out of your house. And you will lose all of your possessions. All of that, without question, is happening to you tomorrow morning. Also, with that same certainty, I assure you, That by Friday, you will receive $100 million. When you wake up tomorrow morning, how worried and anxious are you going to be that you just lost all your stuff? Knowing that Friday, you're going to have $100 million. You're not going to be pulling your hair out. It's going to, you're going to simply look at it as, as, as an inconvenience. And as Paul said last week when he listed everything he went through, a momentary light affliction. <laughs> Faith was never supposed to be an idea or a feeling, but a conviction that transforms the way we live day to day, that reshapes our values and our choices, and We have the choice to trust God. It may not be perfect, but we trust him with all we have. One of the most comforting, reassuring verses um, that I can think of is, is Mark 9, 24. And it's this father coming to Jesus for the healing of his child. And he says, heal my child, 
I believe, help me with my unbelief. And the first time I read that passage, I kind of went, well, that doesn't make any sense. But then I realized what he's saying. I believe with everything I have, but I also know there's a lot lacking there. God's not asking for your perfect trust. He is acting, asking for all your trust. You know, the mustard seed. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, if your faith is that big and that's all you have, he says, give it to me. I'll do the rest. I am the perfecter of your faith. Just give me what you have and I will perfect it. Don't let your faith become misplaced. Don't put your faith in your stuff, in your job, or even in your health. Jeremiah 29.11 says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare, for your well-being, and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And that verse sounds so pretty. And that verse sounds so sweet that oftentimes we hang it on our refrigerators, we post it on our walls in our house, and it gives us warm fuzzies. And I'm not trying to belittle the verse or, or ridicule the verse in any way. But it's, we look at it as, this is a sweet verse. But you know what? There is a difficult message in that verse. Because you see, God is talking to his people who he promised them, you are my people, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation. And Babylon just came in and captured them, took them over, and put them into slavery. And many of them would know no other life but that of being a slave. Yet God comes to them and says, I know the plans I have for you. They're not for evil, they're for a future. And I hope he is reminding them that he is indeed good. He is indeed faithful. He is indeed kind and loving. And it does not change with your circumstances. And at this point, you could be sitting there going, yeah, that's all good. But How? How do we not become overwhelmed by fear? How do we overcome our fear? I get it. We should. How? Well, let me just say, I don't think I have a perfect answer, but I've got three tips that I think are helpful in the process. Number one, we can contemplate and look forward to heaven. You know, make plans for eternity where you're going to be free from evil, free from sin, and in the presence of God, what does that look like? Contemplate it. Look forward to it. Make it tangible. You know, my wife and I, we like to vacation, and and oftentimes when we're planning a vacation, we'll go, oh, here's a place we've never been. Let's go there. And so we go, that's really neat you know six months out that's really neat I'm looking forward to going on vacation but as the time draws nearer and by the time we're usually like three months out 
We've been on the internet and we've been scoping this place out. We know what it looks like. We know what the landmarks are. We know what to do when we get there. We've made plans. We've made reservations. Now it's tangible. And I'm going, wow, three more months. Wow, I wish it was tomorrow. And in essence, I'm saying, I'm willing to wish away three months of my life so I could be there. Because it has become tangible to me. Contemplate, look forward to it. Number two, focus on storing up your treasures in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart be also. And if we cling too tightly to this life, then this is the life that we treasure. When I look at the first century church and everything they went through with the persecution and everything else, I think, how did they do it? How did they keep going? But the answer is clear. They thought more about the life to come than they thought about the life that they were living. They were so looking forward to the return of Christ that they weren't concerned as much with this life. Focus on heaven. Focus on storing your treasures there. In the sense that if we get myopic, if this is the only life that we contemplate, that's it. This is the only life we think about. This is the only life we plan for. This is the only life we contemplate. This is, the, this is our treasure. And we think going to the next life is nothing but real loss. We haven't taken the time to put our thoughts and our treasures in heaven and contemplate that. The balances are, are out of whack. If we spend as much time thinking about that life as we do about this life, it wouldn't be nearly as painful. And three, remind yourself of God's goodness and his favor. Practice thankfulness. Practice gratitude. Many times we don't acknowledge how good God has been to us simply because we haven't taken the time to pause and give him credit where credit is due. And genuinely thank him you know he has given us that comforter the Holy Spirit to comfort us to remind us to point back to what we were taught remind yourself of his goodness and I liken it to this we can be like little children my children and I'm sure many of you who have children too they don't take the time to contemplate all that you parents do for them. You put a roof over their head. You give them meals. You pay for their sports. You buy them clothes. You do this. You do that. And you take care of them. You have their best intentions at heart. And they want something. And you say no. And they go, I hate you. You never do anything for me. Because they're not taking the time to really contemplate all the blessings that you have given them. All they're focused on is your no. My daughters at one point when they were growing up told me the only reason you had children was so you could have slaves. And I'm like, really? Really? I ask you to wash the dishes once a week and by the way, it's much more work for me to get you to do them than if I just did them myself. Yeah, I work 60 hours a week. I come home and work all weekends on the yards and on the house and, and take, run you guys to school and run you to your sports and do all this because you're my slave. <laughs> Slavery is not all it's cracked up to be. 
But we can be that way. And I love this quote. Character is not developed in times of crisis. It is exposed. Teachers don't give tests to teach you. They give you tests to see where you are in the learning process. I mean, we talked last week how crisis and pain and everything can help us develop our faith. But when crisis comes, where we're at is exposed. We need to practice our faith day by day, little by little. So when crisis comes, our faith is exposed well. And some of you may not have come to that point in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're afraid of letting go of control in your life. Afraid he may take everything from you that you're holding on to. You know, I've been there. And when I look back, I realize I did not give up anything of value at all. You may be struggling with the thought that your life is your story. And you're not sure how much God you want in your story. You may be pushing him away or saying that you want more of God in your life, but you're not sure how much more God you want in your life. And let me just say this. God is God and there is no escaping him. It's like, it's like putting on your swim trunks, jumping off the pier into the ocean, and then trying to decide how much water you're going to allow into your shorts. God is God. It's time to not only realize that he is ultimately in control of everything. It's time to surrender the fight that you have with him. And give up trying to control the outcomes and the consequences of your life. Give in to the fact that he not only loves you enough to remove the certain outcome and consequences of your sin. But he also loves you enough to ask you into a safe relationship with him. And if you haven't come to that point in your life. I'm just asking you, will you? Will you consider that? I mean, there's no real magic prayer in this. You know, it's simply just coming to the realization that it's time to give up the fight and surrender to the one who always had your best intentions at heart. He has plans for you, and they are not for evil or destruction, but they're good in order to give you a future and a hope. And if you're at that point tonight where you're like, I want to give up control, I want to give my life to Christ. Let me just simply ask you, there's a blue card in the seat in front of you. Grab it. I'm going to be at the connections table in the foyer. And I want to talk to you more about this. I'm just going to close this in prayer. Lord, Father God, you indeed are better and greater than we could ever imagine. That you are truly good. And Lord, I am thankful that you are in control because you know what's coming. And Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here tonight that is at that point of surrendering to you, I pray that you press it upon their heart to do so.
and reveal yourself to them in a way that you have never revealed yourself to them before. Amen.